Day by Day, the verse-by-verse Bible teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel in Elk Grove Village, Illinois, with Pastor Phil Ballmeyer. We're glad you've joined us, and we look forward to spending time again in the Word of God together. We also invite you to stay tuned at the end of today's broadcast for information about additional studies and resources. Thanks again for being with us. As the scene in the throne room of God unfolds, John begins to see things that are difficult to describe. Creatures who surround the throne worshiping and praising the Lord We'll try to glean from these things ourselves as we join Pastor Phil in Revelation chapter 4. So let's open our Bibles as he brings us today's teaching. The first living creature was like a lion. The second living creature like a calf, or like an ox actually. The third living creature had a face like a man. And the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. Now when Ezekiel sees his vision of heaven... He describes the same thing. In Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 10, he said, And as for the likeness of their faces, describing these beings, each had the face of a man, each had the four, each of the four had the face of a lion on the right side, each of the four had the face of an ox on the left side, each of the four had the face of an eagle. In Ezekiel 10, verse 20 and 21, he says, This is the living creature I saw under the God of Israel by the river Kibar. And I knew they were cherubim. The I am in the Hebrew at the end is a plural. So it's cherub or plural is cherubim. Each had uh, four faces and each one four wings. And the likeness of the hands of a man was under their wings. Now, Jesus said the volume of the book, it is written of me. The volume of the book, it is written of me. We see Jesus Christ all throughout the pages of the Old Testament, in prophecies and types and pictures, etc. And many commentators see in the four Gospels, the four faces of the cherubim that surround the throne of God. They see the lion, the ox, the man, and the eagle. In other words, they see Jesus Christ in quadraphonic, if you will. Why four Gospels? Because each gospel represents a different aspect of Jesus' character. Let me, let me go through them quickly. The gospel of Matthew. Matthew was a Jew. And he wants to present, the theme of his gospel is to present to us, or to the Jewish people, Jesus the Messiah, the Lion of the tribe of Judah. And so Matthew traces the genealogy of Christ back to Abraham, father of the Jewish people. Well, Mark's gospel, his theme is to to present Jesus Christ as the suffering servant. The ox is the symbol of a beast of burden. And Mark's gospel is the only one that does not contain a genealogy because who cares about the genealogy of a servant? Well, Luke then, his theme is to present the humanity of Christ, that Jesus is the son of man. So he traces Jesus' genealogy all the way back to Adam, the first man. And John, well... He wants to present Christ as the Son of God, the deity of Christ. An eagle in Scripture is the king of the birds and therefore the king of the heavens and is used often in Scripture as a symbol for God. Does John's gospel contain a genealogy? Well, kind of. In the beginning was the Word, 
And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So in the four Gospels we see, in each of the Gospel writers' theme, we see the lion, the ox, the man, and the eagle. But something else I think you'll find interesting. Whenever Israel set up camp in the wilderness, God gave to them very specific instructions on how they were to be grouped. They were to set up camp with the tabernacle always in the middle, with three tribes to the north, three tribes to the east, three tribes to the south, and three tribes to the west. Each group had a lead tribe, and each of the three rallied around the league, the elite tribe's flag containing its insignia. Numbers chapter 2 tells us what tribes set up in each direction. Okay, you think this is, you know, you, you, you read these things and you just race through them. Let me try to show you what you're missing if you do that. Numbers chapter 2 tells us, first of all, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun were to camp on the east side of the tabernacle and were known as the camp of Judah, and Judah's flag was a gold lion on a scarlet background. Ephraim, Manasseh, and Benjamin were to camp on the west side of the tabernacle and were known as the camp of Ephraim, and Ephraim's symbol was a black ox on a field of gold. Reuben, Simeon, and Gad were to camp on the south side of the tabernacle and were known as the camp of Reuben. Reuben's symbol was a man on a field of gold. Dan, Naphtali, and Asher were to camp on the north side and were known as the camp of Dan, signified by a gold eagle on a field of blue. So every time Israel set up camp as commanded by God in the wilderness, they were modeling the throne of God in heaven. Now here's something that really blow your mind. Not only all of this, but in Numbers chapter 2, it gives us the total number of each group of three. Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun numbered 186,400 and were to camp on the east side. Ephraim, Manasseh, and Benjamin numbered 108,100 and were to camp on the west side. Reuben, Simeon, and Gad numbered 151,400 and were to camp on the south side. And Dan, Naphtali, and Asher numbered 157,600 and were to camp on the north side. Now, if you are rabbinical in your thinking, when God tells you to camp to the east, north, south, and west, you make sure you don't camp to the northwest or southwest or the northeast or southeast, you make sure that however wide the tabernacle is, that's how wide you camp, and then take as many, take as far back as you need to go to get the entire three tribes in. With the largest number of people camped on the east and the smallest number on the west, and with an identical number almost exactly of people on the north and south sides of the tabernacle, it meant if you were to look down on the camp of Israel in the wilderness from a very high mountain, or if we could have flown over it back then in a helicopter, what would you have seen on the ground laid out in the wilderness? A cross. Isn't that, doesn't that blow your mind? And right in the middle of it was the tabernacle. It was the place where God and man met for the purpose of fellowship. Just as God and man have come together for fellowship at the cross. It's absolutely amazing. Read your Bibles like a detective. Don't gloss over some of these things. What is the Holy Spirit? He goes through the trouble of putting down all these numbers for us. We think, oh, man, what, why do I have to read all this? <laughs> you know, we're so lazy. If the, if the gold nuggets aren't just sitting on top of the ground, we don't dig at all. 
I mean, as I'm reading this, I'm thinking, God, you are so incredible how you put in the Old Testament all of these things that we read and go, that's incredible. How God was, was through Israel, was, was, was really declaring things to us that we read about even in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, you have the New Testament concealed. In the New Testament, you have the Old Testament revealed. So it's incredible. Verse 8, John said, The four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within. The six wings correspond to the vision that Isaiah saw of the throne of God in Isaiah chapter 6. He describes uh, angelic creatures, which he calls seraphim, who had six wings. The eyes, all the eyes, speak of comprehension. Look, these are not dumb robots. These are highly intelligent, spectacular, angelic creatures. In fact, in Ezekiel 28, verse 14, we learn that Lucifer is such a being. And before he fell, he was the top musician in heaven. He was the worship leader. And it's interesting that he is now called the prince of the power of the air. And you can speculate just what exactly that means, but it, to me, I think in part it means, especially in our day, the last you know 100 years as radio and all has come into being and television and all of that, which use the airwaves uh, as a medium. Uh, Satan is uh, the, the, who is the uh, prince of the power of the air, I think, in being a, uh, an angelic creature that had, as the Ezekiel describes him, uh, the vo- a voice like a thousand pipe organs uh, at one time, he, he, which he used to sing praises to God. He was the worship leader in heaven. But uh, music is a very powerful medium, isn't it? And it can be used for great good. It can be used to praise God and bring our hearts into the presence of God through our worship. Or it can be used to indoctrinate and control, especially the minds of young people, which I think the devil is doing quite effectively through things like MTV and, uh, and uh, various other radio uh, programs and music and hip-hop and, and some of the stuff, the gangster rap and some of the stuff that just indoctrinates and controls young people. It's interesting that as the, uh, as the head musician in heaven, how he uses that now as the prince of the power of the air to control and to uh, destroy uh, in many regards today. Something else I thought was kind of interesting. Maybe you've heard this, maybe you ha- haven't. When Ezekiel describes his vision, of the throne of God in chapter 1. Strange chapter. I mean, he sees these angelic creatures and he describes them as a wheel within a wheel and how they're able to dart back and forth like lightning. Now, I don't know, maybe I'm out there, okay? And some people, and I probably am. I've always believed there is a direct correlation between UFOs and demons. I, I personally do not think UFOs are really visitors from another planet. Uh, there is a book that was written years ago by a man by the name of Jacques Vallée. He is a ufologist. He's an expert in the field of uh, UFO phenomenon. In fact, if you ever saw the movie Close Encounters of the Third Kind, he was the French scientist. That's, they, they, they used the, the, the character to represent Jacques Vallée. He studied this subject for 20 or 30 years. He is not a Christian, and he came to a conclusion that I find fascinating about what he believes UFOs are. He said he does not believe they're visitors from another planet. He believes they are projections from another dimension. 
And they are preparing the world to receive an ultimate descent. These are his words, not mine. They are preparing the world to receive an ultimate deception too horrible for the human mind to comprehend. That's quite a statement from the mouth of an unbeliever. And wherever you find in the world a concentration of the occult, especially I'm thinking down in South America, you will also find a a concentration of UFO sightings. And so it's just very interesting to me that as Ezekiel describes these angelic creatures, and of course you have good angels and fallen angels. How he describes them as a wheel within a wheel. Could this possibly be what people are seeing when they see UFOs? They're seeing some kind of demonic entity that is trying to tell the world or convince the world that there are visitors from another planet, but actually it's just Satan's demons preparing the world for some ultimate deception. Well, I'll leave it with you to think about. But as John sees the throne of God and sees the good angels, the cherubim, he says in verse 8, And they do not rest day or night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Just a way of saying God is eternal. He is the great I Am. He lives in the eternal present tense. Notice they say, holy, holy, holy. Not love, love, love. Or mercy, mercy, mercy. And God is all of those, correct? But if there's one attribute of God that seems to define Him more than any other, it would be His holiness. And a lot of people don't really understand that. In their mind, the one attribute that defines God more than any other is love. And of course, love is a wonderful attribute. I'm very thankful that God is love. But they tend to gravitate towards that one attribute more than any other because if you're living a life that is not really in obedience to God, you're trusting that God is such a God of love that pretty much, unless you're really a bad character, you're gonna, He's going to let you into heaven because God is love. And because He's love, He doesn't send really anybody to hell except you know, the worst uh, people in society. And God is love. But God is also holy. He is also righteous. His love provided a way by which we might be saved. But the Bible says without holiness, nobody is going to see the Lord. So to think that because God is love, I can live a life that really is sinful and disobedient, and somehow God's love is going to cover me and allow me to enter into heaven anyways, that's a lie from the pit of hell. And unfortunately, many have bought into it and are going to stand before the Lord someday as Jesus described in Matthew 7, and he's there going to hear him say to them, Depart from me, I never knew you. Even though he is a God of love, he has to punish sin. And the only way for our sins to be paid for, erased, is by the blood of Christ. And we all know that. Why three times? Holy, holy, holy. Well, because there's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But also... When Jesus wanted to really emphasize something, he would say, verily, verily, or truly, truly, one of the translations uh, says, uh, that's just for emphasis. Well, three times. Wow, you're over the top now. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. I mean, God is Holy. One author put it this way. In fact, well, first of all, 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 2, Hannah declared... 
There is no one holy like the Lord. And then this author said, God's holiness is his utter and complete separation from evil in any and every form. He is absolutely untainted by any evil, error, or wrongdoing. Unlike angels, some of whom have sinned, or humans, all of whom have sinned, end quote. Now, we are commanded to be holy as God's people. And as I said, Hebrews 12, 14 says, without holiness, nobody's going to see the Lord. What does it mean when we are commanded to be holy? Certainly, we can't be as holy as God. He is uniquely holy. He is absolutely holy. So what does it mean when he calls us to be holy? Because Peter said that as obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts, as in your ignorance, you're not, you know, don't act like unbelievers anymore. That was when you were dead in trespasses and sins and were ignorant to the things of God. Now you're children of God. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct because it is written, be holy for I am holy. With regard to us, holiness obviously doesn't mean the holiness that God has because he's perfect. But the word means to be separate. And what God is calling us to when he says that we are to be holy, well, the church, uh, the, the Greek word that is translated church is ekklesia. It comes from two Greek words, uh, ek, which is out of, and kaleo, which is to call. So ekklesia means to an assembly of called out ones. We've been called out of the world. We still live in the world, but we've been called out of the world to draw close to God. We are now, we have been bought with a price. We are no longer our own. We belong to God, and we are to honor Him, and we are to glorify Him with our bodies and with our spirits, which now belong to Him. We are His possession. And as such, we are to, as Paul quoted in Second Corinthians, God speaking to his people Israel, but it applies to us, come out from among her, my people, and be separate. Don't touch what is unclean, and I will receive you, says the Lord. The world is a defiling place. All you got to do is turn on the TV. I mean, you know, the world is a defiling place. And the God of this world has designed it to keep people away from the true and living God by appealing to the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. Well, once we get saved, we're to come out from the world, its mentality, its philosophies, and so on, and we are to draw close to God. That's what the church is all about. It's about moving away from the world and drawing close to God. That's what holiness is. And certainly, it's a lifelong process. As we draw closer and closer to the Lord, the Holy Spirit is able to conform us more and more into the image of Jesus Christ. But we are to be separate. We are to draw close to God. I mean, isn't that why, you know, when we talk about being saved, as one a great old preacher I was listening to the other day uh, on tape said, you know, when you talk about being saved, what are you saved from? Well, I'm saved from hell. Well, yeah. Is there anything else? Are you saved from alcohol? Are you saved from fornication? Are you saved from pornography? I mean, doesn't it mean when we say we're saved that the Lord has been working? Yeah, immediately we're saved from the penalty of sin. We're not going to hell. Thank God. Is that all? No, it's all about the rest of our life drawing close to the Lord. That we become more and more like Christ. So in verse 9 then, John says, Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever... The 24 elders fall down. They just can't help themselves. They just get into it, man. They fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne saying, 
And he goes on. As the cherubim, these four living creatures, are around the throne worshiping God, the, the, the 24 elders, which represent the church, really, are so caught up in the moment, they actually just take their crowns off and cast them at the feet of Jesus. What are these crowns? Well, the Bible speaks of five different crowns that are available to the believer. There might be others, but these are the ones the Bible specifically mentions. There is the crown of righteousness, which is given to those who love Jesus appearing, 2 Timothy 4.8. There's the crown of life, which is given to those who just are madly in love with the Lord himself, James 1 verse 12. We read in 1 Peter 5.4 about the crown of glory, which is given to those who serve him for servanthood. Then there is a soul winner's crown given to those who share their faith with others, 1 Thessalonians 2.19 tell us. And finally, there's the martyr's crown for those who lay down their lives for Jesus. We see that one in Revelation 2, verse 10. Now, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 24, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. In other words, look, and Paul was talking to the Corinthians, and in Corinth, they hosted what was called the Asmissian Games. They were comparable to the Olympic Games. And so they understood athletic competition in Corinth. And they had all been, no doubt, to the games, and they had seen the various athletes competing, and they had seen the runners running in a race. And Paul says, look, no runner gets up to the starting line in a literal physical race and goes, I hope I come in last today. You don't train to come in last. You train to come in first. You may not come in first, but you're going for first place. And Paul says, as Christians, we ought to have that mentality. Our goal as Christians should be to discard anything that would hinder us in our race for Christ because we want to win a prize. We are going for it. We are competing not for a perishable laurel wreath is what the athletes often won back then. Big deal. All that training and sacrifice and and denial of self to, to train and so on and all the pain that goes along with it. And what do you win? You win a laurel wreath on your head and about three days later it's all brown and the leaves are falling off. You know, and Paul says that's what they compete for. Look how disciplined they are. What are we competing for? We're competing for a crown that never fades away. And the joy of it is when we get to heaven and the Lord Jesus places those crowns on our heads because he's coming and his reward is with him. So when we're raptured, the first thing he's going to do is reward us. And you know what we're going to do with those rewards, those crowns? As we stand around the throne worshiping him, we're going to cast them right at his feet. And don't you know you're going to want to cast something at his feet on that day? So get into it. Go for it. Don't kick back and go, well, you know, as long as I made it into heaven, that's all I care about. You know? Like an athlete saying, well, as long as I just made it in the competition, I'm good. No. Have the mind to win. Well, verse 11. The angels say, uh, the uh, elders, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. What, what did he do? He create, not evolved. Oh, we thank you, Lord God, that you created the amoeba. And let it evolve, Lord. No, he didn't say that. The angels don't say that. We don't say that in heaven. He says, you are worthy to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. By your divine plan, by your incredible 
architecture and divine design and all. I mean, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. And that my soul knows right well, David said. You got to be evolution is the dumbest thing I've ever heard of. I mean, people would not. I'm wearing a nice, stylish watch. I think it is. It wasn't all that expensive, but I just got a compliment on it the other day. Somebody said, that's a really nice watch. I said, well, thank you. I mean, I don't know what goes into this watch. I mean, I'm sure it's, it's got a quartz movement inside, and it's, it's probably got some intricate design and details that go into making. And, of course, because it's so thin and stylish, I'm sure they had to work hard to make everything fit together just in the way it does. And yet this, nobody in their right mind would think that this watch came, to, came together by itself through a big explosion in some kind of a metal factory. And yet the wrist that this watch sits on is far more complicated than the watch. And yet man has no trouble believing that that we all came about by a gigantic explosion and a whole bunch of mutations and accidents over the millennium, about billions of years, they say. You've been listening to Day by Day, the verse-by-verse Bible teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel in Elk Grove Village, Illinois, with Pastor Phil Ballmeyer. Today's message, as well as many other studies, can be heard and downloaded free of charge from our website at daybydayradio.org. From our website, you can contact us, order resources, read Pastor Phil's blog, and also subscribe to our daily podcast. We hope you'll pay us a visit. And remember to join us for Day by Day, Monday through Friday, here on this station. Thanks again for listening, and please join us again next time as we continue to study God's Word. Until then, may the Lord richly bless you and guide your steps as you walk with Him day by day. He said for